Today's episode of the Ryan Russillo Show on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Unpredictable like the Celtics lineup. Who's playing tonight? I don't know. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. The plan, Chris and I, Super Bowl ready on a Wednesday. Different drop for the pod today. But we're going to run through a bunch of different prep questions. I will argue that this Super Bowl pod is going to be as good as any that you're going to hear. I really feel that way. Chris is incredible. So let's get it started. The first thing I want to start with is the quarterback. Because as Mahomes... You know, got hurt in the middle of the year, Chris, and this is something I've been kind of saying in the second half. I think you've been saying it too. It's it's why I had faith back in the Chiefs. It's like it's almost like he's become underrated. He became underrated because he wasn't new. He didn't have the same stats as last year, and then Lamar happened. So whenever anybody was like, you know, Lamar or Patrick Mahomes, I'm like, look, as great as this Lamar thing is, like you got to be kidding me. And now that's why I think the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl and maybe should have been here the last two years. So in prepping for somebody like Mahomes, who's just different, so it's not just a Lamar thing. It's not like a Vic thing and containing him. It's just Mahomes. What is that like for a defense? How different is your week when it's somebody that's it's not just extremely talented because there's plenty of talented quarterbacks that I'm sure you've gone up against, but a different level of prep because maybe the, some of the rules for that front are different in dealing with somebody like him. Is there anything that you can remember that kind of equates to that? Yeah. Um, anytime you play a player like Mahomes, especially a quarterback. I mean, you're going to play one playmaker a week, even against a bad team that might be a receiver or um, a back that usually you're going to have to spend a little extra time on and say, hey, this guy's different. But when you have a quarterback that's not just, you know, a Brady um, or somebody that that plays the game a little bit more traditionally, Mahomes is a pocket passer, but Mahomes can tuck it down and hurt you with his legs. Where he's different is that he extends plays in the pocket. You know, he'll drift deep, he'll buy time. And one thing you heard uh, Salah talk about um, this week was plastering receivers. Uh, and that's going to be big in a couple of days. It's, um, you know, the corners, the the DBs, the backers, everybody knowing when the play breaks down and he's buying time and he's drifting to 11 yards, uh, which first off alters the way you rush him. The DBs have to find a guy and plaster him. And and a lot of times that's a really imperfect technique. It's kind of the shit hits the fan drill. And, you know, they have to be great there. Mahomes will go back to 11 yards. He'll drift and then he'll knife in the B gap. So the inside push for um, San Francisco is going to be huge. We know they have an advantage here. I think both teams have advantages on the D-line inside, especially San Francisco with Buckner and Armstead. Chris Jones is going to be dominant no matter who he lines up against. But the thing you have to worry about is as ends, and I'm looking at D Ford mainly because he's the left end. He's the ball side end on Mahomes. Mahomes has vision on him. Mahomes is going to alter his drop target. Most guys are going to drop to seven or eight. Mahomes will be back there at 11 or 12. You don't have to worry about rushing with power and vision on the other side. And Bosa, you have to worry about with D Ford because he's going to be inclined to try to run right by Schwartz, especially seeing Mahomes drift. But when you do that, you open up a big B gap. So the DBs, when that happens, especially if they're in man and they've plastered, they're going to be inclined as he steps up in that B gap to come off coverage. And that's where he can really hurt you. Or if they don't, uh, you can get that play that you got at the end of the first half last week. And that was uh, a touchdown. That was a real backbreaker where the end of this, this of course, turned out to be the right end, got too high, rushing with speed, 
the tackle got bogged down and there's a big escape lane for Mahomes and he'll tuck it and run it. So when he extends plays, it's not just the run pass dilemma that that guys in man or zone are faced with, but it's also the end on his vision side. And this happens to be their speed rusher. So D Ford has got to have a really balanced game. You can beat Schwartz a lot of ways, but he's a really good player. And I'm not sure it's a great matchup um, because I think to beat Schwartz, you got to get into his body and then pull him towards you. I mean, like a push-pull type rush or power with vision would be the way to go. But just trying to run right by him, that's going to be bad for the rush lanes and bad for the coverage too. Did you feel like when you showed up to work, you had a toolbox that you just sit down in front of you and you were like, I don't know if I want to go push-pull. I don't know if I want to go chop. I don't know if I want to go inside. I don't like, did you feel like you had the entire workbench and your prime in front of you or you were just like, give me the hammer? In my prime, because I still had speed, uh, you do feel like it. Because if you have speed and if you have power and you and you lead with either of those, um, you can always be successful and there's wrinkles off of that. But as you get older, you have to be craftier. Well, I always wondered, did you ever want to do the Dwight Freeney like fake spin, inside spin? Did you ever try that? The inside spin is is one of those things that like everybody talks about, but you it's <laughs> it's the white whale, man. You just don't see it much. And uh, when a guy hits an inside spin, whether it's in, I was always afraid to even try it in in one on ones. And the only people that are going to see that is your D line. But I don't want to get laughed at. But there are guys really executing in games. I remember uh, Demarcus Ware did it to Joe Staley, I want to say, uh, and then Freeney would do it with regularity, but. The inside-outside spin is nasty. A guy like D. Ford, though, you've got all these tools in your toolbox. You're going to need them, but it's as much rushing with vision. And there's some guys who can rush uh, to try to win the rush, and that's great. But when you play somebody like Mahomes, you have to be able to rush and win rushes with your eyes up. And that's a fine line to walk because you don't want to be, like, standing up all tall, which is going to fuck your rush up. You have to be able to rush with leverage, uh, be reactive, and also have your eyes kind of on the man instinctively and on Mahomes. Uh, I remember playing Cam Newton. That was a big one. It's a different challenge. You asked if like we ever played anybody that that reminded you. The, every minute you spend not talking about the game plan and execution, you know, talking about a Mahomes or a Cam Newton, they're different players, but they 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 have challenges that are extracurricular. You spend a minute away from the game plan and your execution. So, um, and coaches get paranoid and they get scared of getting beat with Mahomes extending plays or Cam Newton in the run game, the option stuff. And then you play the game and he just beats you traditionally um, and and you feel like you wasted time. But it's not a waste of time because you have to go through those motions. So on the Cam thing, like, again, it's it's different than Mahomes. And, you know, I just I just remember, like, you know, back in the day when I'd read, you know, different lead-ups and the local writers against different matchups and all these different things. Are the coaches always write about, hey, these are the rules. Like if you're going to get to cam, you know, pile up on them, you know, make sure you hit them low. All of these, like I can sit here and say those kinds of things, but is it, I'm sure it's always easier to say than to actually go ahead and execute. But is that the kind of stuff that's being like hammered into your head in film every day leading up to this kind of a game? Well, the problem is, you know, and, and coaches are, they're very smart. They know the scheme better than the players, but a lot of times, I think sometimes they think things will work because they saw it done on tape one time. Like, for instance, and, you know, this is uh, this is definitely an offshoot of the Mahomes conversation because there's no way are they similar, but they're similar in that they add a different wrinkle. And again, it's Mahomes extending plays. It's Cam and the quarterback power. It's the, uh, it's the read option. 
It's how do you tackle him when you get to him? It's so funny to see during the week some teams I've been on that they'll do these stupid drills where you're like simulating trying to tackle Cam with a bag or something, or there's some other wrinkle in the drill that just there's no way to prepare for it. You've got to fall back on your fundamentals and you have to just be cognizant of that fact. And and that's why, you know, young players sometimes can't be relied upon to make plays in big situations because they're trying so hard to get there or win that they're not remembering that cue during the week. And, um, you know, it's funny, one play I really wanted back uh, in 2018 or 2000, yeah, 2017 Super Bowl year when we went down to Carolina and beat him. You talk about Cam. I uh, beat the dog out of the right tackle. I think it was Khalil with a chop club, and I got a free shot on Cam. Now, Cam's bigger than me, and all I've been told all week is to wrap up, wrap up, just wrap up. Don't worry about the ball because God forbid I go for the ball and miss Cam. I'm going to be crushed if he extends a play and converts a, a third down. So I hit him really hard. Then Cam lands on me and actually fractured my rib. I pull him down. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, and he cracks my rib. I didn't get the sack. Now, when I go back on film, the ball was right there for me. And I had like four or five forced fumbles that year. Uh, but I was just thinking, get Cam down, get Cam down. And of course, I get in film on Monday and Tuesday. And I'm hearing, get the ball. Get the ball. So it's just coaches second guess their coaching points. The you know after an entire week of hammering at home, when when the live bullets are flying on game day, you have to try to remember your fundamentals. You don't you, you're cognizant of what you've been working on all week. Sometimes there's a read option wrinkle people throw in, like with Cam, go attack the mesh. So that means as as he's selling the fake and the ball is in the running back's belly and Cam's getting ready to carry it out or hand the ball off, that means go blow up the mesh, which is where the handoff is happening between the two players. So I've been, I've been told to knife directly to that, to that marker and blow the whole thing up. And coaches will say it all week like it's scripture and it'll work every time. And then you realize that the timing is off and you're four steps away when the mesh is happening. So then who do you go attack? And that's the problem, I think, sometimes with coaches getting outside the scheme thing and worrying about how to execute it. Sometimes you got to stick to your fundamentals. And I think with Mahomes, it's going to be a fundamentals thing. It's your rush lanes. These things are exaggerated this week, but they're true every week. You know, middle push, don't get too high on the edge. Be able to counter back if you feel the step up. And don't bury yourself uh, on the ball hand side and let Mahomes, you know, uh, bubble to 12 yards and then take a shot down the field as he rolls right. I mean, these are things that are true for everybody, but you just have to hone in on them more. I love the mesh point thing because as a guy that, you know, doesn't play, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, that's genius. Just attack the mesh point. <laughs> you know, like they're just there. Attack the mesh. Like what's so hard? Yeah, just- you know, the, the read option is done. It's over. And then you're like, wait, it's actually a little bit harder. Like, try to attack a Lamar Jackson Ingram mesh point, you know? Um, and really, the only way you can do yeah. it is trying to overload the actual handoff, you know, where you have a third body paying attention to an Ingram and then Lamar assignment. And then I watched Wake this past year. I go, their mesh point lasts like 10 seconds. So what like, what, are, what are they doing? <laughs> it depends. And, you yeah. know, coaches don't think about the fact that you know, there's also other plays that are run. Now, if you see near back in the gun, you you know that your your run game is going away. But what that's going to kill you on is if you tighten that angle down, and I've heard coaches say, hey, tighten that angle down and get, you know, um, hand outside leg uh, and t- and take that angle where, 
you're going to get the mesh point, which you'd have to be like a Michael John, uh, you know, who was it? Michael Johnson was the sprinter. 200 meter. Am I messing up my Olympic knowledge no, no. here? Michael, Michael Johnson. Johnson. You'd yeah, have yeah. to be like a Michael Johnson to get there. And then if it's play action, you're buried, you're buried on the tackles inside shoulder and you're not getting any rush. So I think, um, you know, some of these gimmicks are great, but if it, if it worked for everybody, everybody would do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think sometimes sk- sticking to the script, I, if I were Kansas city now going back to the Mahomes thing on the left side, I would run a lot of tees. I remember them being susceptible to that. We beat them with a, with a couple tees in, uh, in 17. Now that was Alex Smith. So things were different, but you know, Schwartz is a great player. If you can get him turned up the field and you can get your three technique to get vertical, because that's what those guys like to do. You know, uh, Armstead, he's a big guy, but they can rush with speed. Buckner's a big guy. He can rush with speed. Get vertical, puncture that B-gap, and then fill back. And, you know, if you get the center as you wrap and you're D forward, you just have to play the center solid and you can't pick a side and jump around him because then Mahomes will take whatever a gap you you guess wrong on. So that's, I think, a, it's a chess match in pass rush. And that's what's going on as you rush a moving target like Mahomes. And then on the back end, it's a whole other thing. We talked about plastering. I mean, it works together. Okay, then let's look at the other side with a guy like Kittle, who I think is ascension to... I remember the first time I heard somebody say, this is the best tight end in the NFL. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Is he? Mm. And then it was like, oh, I guess he is. And I don't think anybody even disputes it except for maybe, you know, Chiefs fans, Kelsey. But what do you do with Kittle, who... Um, not just a threat in their passing game. And I, I can't even imagine how much better he would be if he had like maybe a more traditional outside threat or another big guy, because you have to be focused on him. You have to be focused on him in a different, bunch of different ways. And just with the leverage he plays with as a smaller tight end, it's not like he's the biggest guy out there and he works people with blocks. So how would you be approaching that as part of that front if you're on the Kansas City side against, yeah, which I think now is, is the game's best tight end? God, yeah, you're right. He is the game's best tight end, and uh, it's because he can do both, um, which is there's only an elite fraternity anymore of guys who are willing to do both and not to mention excel at both. And tight ends, getting ready for a great tight end. I remember getting ready for for Gronk in the Super Bowl. I mean, uh, you know, you asked about getting getting the draw of like a Tom Brady or a Matt Ryan in the Super Bowl. You were asking me, what's it like preparing for those guys? Well, I don't really remember a lot of coaching points for preparing against those guys. Other than Tom, you had to to get the middle push going. That was big because he thrived on that step-up lane. If you see Tom moving in the pocket and patting the ball and kind of, you know, he's got, he's like on a track and he wants to, to climb the pocket, we call it. That was the big coaching point with him. But the thing that dominated that Patriots week was we got to have a plan for Gronk. And I've been on a lot of teams that um, you get ready for for the game and the most disappointing, it just it's just a sinking feeling in your gut is when the coach is like, we're going to get a piece of Gronk or the tight end or whoever it is every play, which takes you out of your rush. And you end up basically the whole time chasing a tight end inside, lined up in a nine, trying to collapse him down to make it easy on the cover guy. And then you end up with your three technique, like four yards up the field, and you're restarting your rush from like a standstill. And usually just it, it turns into this shitty TE, which is like a text, which is the tackle up the field and the end underneath. That's what I worry, and they probably should do it in Kansas City. If I'm a rusher and I'm Frank Clark and I want to have the game of my life, I've had 14 pressures, four sacks in the, in the playoffs, I want to go have another three. It might not be one of those days because you might have to chip um, Kittle a lot. And I would, as 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 much as it pains me to say as a rusher, I would put hands at him at all, 
at all times. I would line up in a nine, so a nine being outside shade of of the uh, of the tight end. If you saw, you know, when he made Minnesota's DNs like a human highlight reel for him, um, you know, his 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 best game blocking on the biggest stage, those guys were in six techniques. They were head up. And that puts you at a tremendous disadvantage in, in the zone scheme um, against the zone scheme like uh, San Francisco. So I would line him up like, I would line Clark and those guys, especially because they're not, they're too light in the ass to play a six head up and win against the best blocking tight end who's functional in the league. I would line them up in a tight nine. I would get a piece of Kittle. I would get vertical and physical in the run game, but you have to worry about the three tech front side. Because what you can't do is play on different levels. And by that, I mean, if the three technique gets, you know, bumped by the tackle on the way to the second level and the guards, you know, stalemates him and and then your edge guys are a couple yards up the field, which is like what was happening against Green Bay. Green Bay has a problem. Their inside guys are not vertical guys, but but the Smith brothers will 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 get upfield. Um, you can't be in that situation where you're on different levels. So everybody has to be on the same level. Um, and, and that'll help the coverage to get in a nine technique because you can eliminate half the release for the second level guys. And I would, uh, I would, I would hope that honey badger, if that's what they're going to do, has the game of his life. That's what it's going to take. Can I just jump in here quick for those that, yeah. that maybe doesn't, you know, don't understand all the terminology where the numbers are basically where you line up. So it's not terminology. It's just, it's the terminology depending. It's not like team to team. It's straight up. Like if you're a zero, you're right over the center and then it's one, yes. two and lined up based like, so if it's an even number, including zero, you're head up on the offensive lineman. And then when you're an odd number, you're in between. So if yep. you're talking about the three, um, we're in between the guard and the tackle, but on the six and the tight nine, how is that like different just so everybody can kind of play along. Yeah, it's different because like, and I played in Spags' scheme, and I'll be surprised because Spags like Spags been doing this a long time. Spags was not a big fan of getting guys in nine techniques. You know, I used to play in that frog stance that you know you had to play in, and you saw Everson Griffin and 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 uh, those guys in Minnesota doing it, where they're nose to nose with the tight end, and that means you have the C gap, the inside gap, to the D gap, which means you help in the D gap. That's not your gap per se, but you should, if the ball bubbles outside the D gap and you have support help in the run game, you're going to be the inside shoulder uh, tackle if it's, if that vice tackle happens like five yards outside. So a lot of times when you see a ball bubble around a defensive end who's head up on the tight end, it's not really his fault at all. A nine technique, which is what I played more later in my career is outside of the tight end, which means you set a wall, you set the edge. And you really have to set a firm edge against that zone scheme uh, and make that that one cut that Mostert's done so well uh, less decisive. And by decisive, I mean um, it's not he's di- he's not dictating where that cut is. You're dictating where that cut is. You set a fucking wall. And then you have to rely on your three technique to not be washed or on a different level. So I think that's a big deal in the run game. But what you do uh, there, if you're getting a piece of him every time, and you make coverage simpler behind you, is they're going to start flexing him out, you know, to give him easier access. And what that does is it's a trickle-down effect. Then you know, we used to call it bird-rabbit. You call out bird-bird when it's passed, and rabbit when it's run. Those bird calls start coming. You know, 85 out of the formation, they're going to be throwing the ball. So that would feel pretty good for me if I'm an end at first. You're like, man, I got to eat my medicine here and get a, a piece of them the whole first quarter. But maybe then they start flexing him out. And then that makes things simpler on you as a rusher because having to get a piece of them every play 
it's great, but like I said, it fucks the rush up. And uh, I, if you man him up, that low hole defender, being the guy right in the middle of the field, like usually a backer or something, he's got to have eyes on him at all time. Um, because there's two guys on the field that I think could get buckets. And by that, I mean, you know, they could get buckets anywhere, not just in Shanahan's offense. And that's Debo Samuel and, uh, and, and Kittle. And uh, you got to have a plan for Kittle starting there. And then everybody else has to win. Even if you double him, Everybody else has to win their one-on-one. So he's definitely the the straw that stirs the drink. So we'll see what happens and what they do there. And it'll be a lot of it's bags. These D coordinators, they they don't want to change. But this is a Sunday where you got to change. I love what you're doing here, by the way, um, because it's it's something that's just so easy to dismiss. And, you know, there, there's not much public sympathy for anybody who's a, who's a pro athlete, really. Like, hey, you guys have these great lives. You make all this money. Like, even sometimes you and I disagree about how bad of a deal it is, sure. But to think about being an edge guy, especially a guy that lines up outside most of the time, where you're like, this is going to be awesome. I get to tee off. You know, like, I'm going to get yeah. there at some point, right? And then it's like, no, 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 no. We actually want you to not do the thing that you always do and just sort of float in the middle. And then you can start your rush once the play is already over just by getting your hands on the tight end before he goes out into his route and you pass him off to somebody else. Like that would actually suck so bad. Think about waiting your whole life. I know. It's remarkable to bring up. Everybody on the field Sunday thinks they have some right to play in this game that they've earned and they've waited their entire lives. And if you don't play well in it, then you're a failure. Um and the problem is for a guy like Frank Clark, who's been balling out all postseason, and and you know that that goes to show why they gave him that money, and everybody was doubting him the entire year. Um, and I like his matchup against Staley. I he's probably sitting there like, "Fuck, man! If I don't get a sack, everybody's gonna say like, hey, where were you?'" That's everybody's favorite yeah. thing. They just read the stat sheet, and if he ends up with one or two tackles, no sacks, and like five six pressures. Nobody cares unless you really watch the game because most people aren't watching the game. Most people are got their hand buried in the the chips and dip and they're half drunk by half times and watching the commercials. So, you know, you want to make that one big splash play. And that's another thing is when you're when you're playing in the Super Bowl, one thing I learned in New England was don't chase plays, you know, and when you're playing in the playoffs, do not chase plays. The plays are going to get made. Um, and whenever it's your turn to make it, that's the key is making the play when you have the opportunity. When you try to... When you try to force things because you want to make your impression on a game, it's just not the time sometimes. You have to know the time to dig down and go make a play, take chances, and when not to. Because if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're out there and you're worried about the what-ifs of not making a play, you're going to press and you're going to fuck things up for the team defense. Okay, so your lead-up to, and I want to get some Super Bowl stories from you, but your lead-up to the Philly-New uh, England game where you'd, you know, you'd been with New England previous year when you guys beat Atlanta – how often were they asking you about New England in your prep for the game? They asked me a good bit, but... Um, what stands out? I mean, there had to have been one conversation where they are like, look, what can you help us with? Honestly, that whole thing's like a blur. I mean, they usually sit you down. When you played somewhere and you're getting ready to play uh, that team, they usually sit you down at the beginning of the week and say, hey, can, I, can you stop by my office, whether it's the head coach or the D coordinator or whatever. And, you know, they talk through some things, maybe personnel, um, maybe scheme, but my whole thing to them was, Hey, if you're looking for me to uh, give you the key to beating the Patriots, like we're in trouble. Um, you know, I can give you what I got, maybe a couple things. I remember calls. I might remember little language things, but to be honest, what you see on tape, uh, is what you get personnel wise. I could tell you each offensive lineman, how I think you can best beat them. And I think some of that helped, 
give guys a little head start. That's the big, like inside our room, I can give you keys to beating anybody. Um, and I don't know if you're going to be able to go out in there and carry it out, but I, I can tell you the blueprint. Now, you can also see that on film, but a lot of times when you watch somebody's rush reel, when you sit down during the week and I'm looking at like, say, Nate Solder's rush reel, you're only looking at the sacks, you know, for the most part, like the coach will put up, oh, this is how you beat them. This is how you beat them. This is how you beat them. But everybody on tape has different, you know, uh, levels of physicality, speed, agility, um, different skill sets. So I can only tell you what I think from watching him in practice every day, not just the rush reel, what I see guys beating them, like practice squad guys beating uh, these guys, or, you know, the second and third guys on the roster, these buried tapes that you'll never see. Well, I saw those. So that's what I could give you. Now, after that, it's kind of, it's just is what it is. Things are out the window, and especially playing a team like New England who can morph into anybody. It doesn't really matter. Um, funniest thing from that week was probably remembering the look on Corey Graham's face when they were like, a, and Corey Graham was a brave dude. Um, Corey Graham was a veteran safety. He was a leader on that defense, kind of an unheralded guy. But yeah, I remember when they were like, hey, you're going to be manned up on Gronk a lot. That's, that's a conversation that you're like, listen, you're always up for the challenge, but you're getting ready for, again, the best game of your life and you want to win the game, but selfishly you want to play well. Like you drew that straw. Um, that's always an interesting one. And it's kind of like being a defensive end and watching an AFC championship or an NFC championship or the divisional round and getting ready to play one of the two teams. And you're looking at it from like a, who do we rather beat on the, you know, who, who do we have a better chance to beat, but also like what tackle can I beat? <laughs> because if it's close, if a team is a seven out of 10 and the other team is an eight out of 10, but on the seven out of 10 team, there's a really good tackle. Maybe you want to play the eight out of 10 team because you can impact the game more. So like the draw with who you're matched up against is totally random. Uh, you know, imagine being a Niners defender this week and, you know, you, your draw is Tyreek Hill, um, which maybe wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had a day like that had the Titans won. So there's an entire expectation game that goes into this too. Yeah. So leading up to it, I know that the week is weird. Like, I, I think there's all sorts of misconceptions. Maybe some of us are right. Like, you get to town. What day did you show up? Let's start with the New England one when you guys came back and beat. Wait a minute. I'm trying to think here. Was that the night I went out to dinner with you and your family and then you, your parents and I went out because we had to drop you off at the hotel? Was that the New England one? Yeah, it was. It had to be. And bro, yeah. let me just tell you something. When you said this, not to be like funny, I don't even remember that dinner. No, no, no doubt. Like Hogan was there. He was off to the side. And then there was like a group of all the, the cool kids. And then you, I showed up to your dinner later because you were there with your wife and you were there with your family. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is we had to, you, me, Howie, Diane got in the car and we dropped you off at the hotel like you were a 10-year-old. And then I went to a party with your parents <laughs> because you weren't allowed to go out. Oh, yeah. And the funniest thing about that week is like, now on San a Francisco. normal week, I'm I'm like, if a, if there's a D-line dinner on a night that I like want to go to bed, I'm mad. Like, I don't even want to like go to dinner past 8.30 or sit in a chair too long. Because like at 33, 34, you're like, everything matters during the week. My rest, you know, being seated too long. If the bus ride is too long, I'm pissed off. Like that week. Oh, by the way, it was Houston. You, that's how confused I was about which one it was. So uh, that was Houston. Yeah. Well, no, the week's a blur. You feel like you're in a fishbowl. Um, the minute you get in your hotel room, 
I just remember very distinctly, if I remember anything about that week, we got to Houston early in the week. You get up to your room. I'm like, this is a really nice room. I'm trying to steal a nap because I had an opportunity to do that. And I just hear helicopters buzzing. I hear people outside. Even when it was quiet in my room, you feel like you're in a fishbowl. It's the eeriest feeling, like knowing that you're in this private room, you know, that you're going to take a shower and you're going to take a dump and you're going to try to sleep eight hours a night and you're going to try to have private conversations with family members. Um, and there's like thousands of people outside your room, effectively like 70 feet down in the lobby, everything like you cannot hide. It's, you, you know, you can just feel it. And, um, you're like, okay, this is like Tuesday or Monday. It's only going to get worse. And every day progressively your, your fishbowl effect becomes even more noticeable. And then you're just like, anything I have to do outside of sitting in my room, I'm going to be annoyed by even going to dinner with like everybody who came in to support me, which is weird to say, but that's a whole nother circus because there's a ton of people in town and everybody feels like you owe them a bit of your time. And, uh, you know, it, it, you're, you're there to win a football game and you're there, there to get rest. And that was especially true the second Super Bowl against, um, against the Pats in, uh, in Minneapolis because I was sick the whole week. Everybody on the team, like 40% of the team was sick. I mean, guys were getting IVs during the week. Guys were, you know, on the New England side too because we were both at the Mall of America and that's just one big like germ vacuum. And they were sick too. And so I was extra pissed off to have to do anything from media day to dinner with people. Not that I'm not saying like I was mad to get dinner with you. I don't even remember the, it was a big family dinner and friends dinner. I tried to knock everything out at once and see everybody at once, but everything becomes like a, damn, I just want to be in my room and, uh, including practice. I'm not even gonna lie. Like if I had a choice not to practice that entire week, I wouldn't have practiced. And most of you guys like practicing, but But seriously, like the more I get to know any of you guys, you think none of you have to practice like a minute for a 10 year career. Well, I mean, there's that. I, I believe that practice late in your career is like good, strictly physical and mental just to keep the, like, to keep the engine running. Like, even if you're just jogging, you're moving, so you're not tight on Sunday. But I'm like, dude, I'm playing in the biggest game of my life in three days. I'm out here doing a drill that's really, I mean, we, we're on our 30th play of team, and I've been running the same stuff. Like, in Jim Schwartz's defense, I'm, I'm in a nine technique. I'm running straight ahead. I'm running straight ahead. There's not really a bunch of variants and, and mental cues that I need to go through. And what if I roll my ankle? Like, what if somebody gets tabletopped inside and lands on my knee? Like, th- the littlest thing can happen that week in practice and you miss out on the biggest moment of your life. And uh, for me, I, you should have seen my practice speed those two weeks. I mean, I was walking. I mean, I'm not walking. <laughs> But I was kind of shuffling. And by Friday, which is a slow practice anyways, I think I was intentionally trying not to pick my feet up off the ground. Just Did like, anybody yell at you? Or they just knew? No. No, because most guys, I mean, like a lot of guys, depending on the team you're on, they're like, okay, it's Friday before the Super Bowl. This is mental. The hay is in the barn, man. And if I'm out and I get hurt, or God forbid, I mean, we were in the Minnesota indoor up in Minneapolis, but it was zero degrees outside. Like the indoor is not much warmer and it's week like 25, I'm not sprinting anywhere. You know, like if I'm, if my hamstring is going to snap, it's going to have, it's going to snap on Sunday, not today. So does anybody go out like, or do you just sit in the room 
and pack dips and yell at each other because nobody wants to leave. Because, you know, I think when dudes were younger, maybe they were more inclined to go out, not just younger players, but maybe I should even yeah. say like 20 years ago, it was like, look, it's sort of a big party and then you figure it out. Um, set the record straight on actually what happens because you were on two different teams. And again, Minneapolis, maybe nobody wanted to go out, but Houston at least was, you know, Houston's actually a very, uh, a lot of pro athletes love Houston. So try to help me understand that. I think Houston was the challenge, uh, but we were on the right team, like, you know, because we we're on the Patriots and everybody had been there before. So I didn't see people like hitting the streets, but there's always going to be like, you have a lot of, like I said, you have a lot of people in town that want a piece of your time. You also have, I believe for some guys, like opportunities to go make a little bit of money early in the week. Like, you know, if you stop by something or whatever, but as, as, as the week draws closer to Sunday. I don't think you're seeing a lot of guys hitting the streets. Now, you know, some guys will just hang out in the lobby till nine, 10 at night talking to their families and whatnot. And that's great. Some guys are, you know, everybody's different, but for me, I was totally antisocial and I didn't want to do anything and I didn't want to be bothered. Um, I wanted to, to be in my room. I wanted to watch a little tape, but I'm not trying to act like I was like some, some gym rat. <laughs> um, I just wanted to be in my fucking room uh, watching TV and laying down. I don't want to be sitting anywhere too long. I don't want to be, you know, in a place where I'm getting stared at. I don't want to be in a place where I feel like I have to entertain everybody. I'm not here to entertain anybody. I'm here to win a football game. And, uh, and in Minneapolis, the weather took care of itself. Like that was just the perfect place for a team like the Eagles. Um, when we were very focused, but there's a ton of distractions, no matter who you are. So I had new England was the right team for Houston. And Minneapolis was the right team for the Philly team I was on um, because you get to Minneapolis, there's nothing to do. We might have a ton of young guys and guys who have never been in the Super Bowl, but, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, we, we guys would just walk around the Mall of America like mall walkers just to do something, you know? And, and it was also the weird element of, you know, hey, I want to see my buddies from New England. Like, I don't believe in that shit where you, you don't see anybody before the game or you know, like my brother, I played my brother a couple times in the pros and people would be like, are you really going to go like eat dinner with him the night before? I'm like, yeah, I don't give, like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to go talk to him on the field and then we're going to try to kill each other. Um, but I, I, I would like, I remember a secret meeting like behind Benny Hanna's like meeting up with like Dev McCourty and Deron Harmon and all those guys like to catch up, but you can't, you can't do it too, too out in the open. So that's another side of things. You got buddies on the other team. All of a sudden, it's this thing. Like if you get seen talking to, and I passed one guy from the Patriots, a younger player that I used to help out a lot in New England. Um, and I passed him in the Mall of America. And I was like, hey, what's up, bro? Like, and he kind of did the, I'm here on business thing. Like we can't talk. <laughs> and I was like, you're fucking dumb, dude. <laughs> give me a name. I can't give you a name, but I just, I just remember being like, I had to try. Bro. I had to try. It doesn't matter on Sunday. Like, it does not matter how you act in the Mall of America. How you, how you play Sunday matters. It just got done meeting with your team captain behind Benny Hanna's. Like, Sunday's going to happen, no matter what. Bill would have been so proud, though. He'd been so proud. <laughs> yeah, he would, that's, that's what he was doing. He was like, ah, not falling in this trap, not being friendly with Chris. That's so of course, good. I've seen him since, and we're great. Yeah, I knew you weren't going to give me the name, but I had to, at least for the audience, ask that follow-up. That's my role on this. Yeah, he gave me the head nod, like the, the head nod. I'm like, coming in for the dap and the hug, he dapped me up, gave me the head nod, and like kind of never stopped walking. I was like, damn, bro, remember when I used to watch film with you? That's funny. God, that's funny. 
Okay, we have our picks coming up, prediction for the game, and more Super Bowl stories, the difference between playing for Philly and New England. But before we get those answers, today's podcast is sponsored by ADT Commercial for Business. ADT Commercial serves businesses ranging from mid-sized organizations to large-scale enterprises. Think of them as a special team who has one focus, your business security. They provide a comprehensive line of security, fire, life safety, and risk management solutions, professional-grade systems for commercial-grade businesses. With ADT Commercial, every day is game day. Fortune 1000 companies rely on ADT Commercial for highly complex, scalable, integrated solutions that help solve their unique business challenges. And if you're looking for a partner to upgrade or take over the monitoring and service of your current system, ADT Commercial can help to painlessly install and maintain large-scale and multi-site businesses. They make it easy to switch providers. Their onboarding is predictable, dependable, and painless. Schedule a no-obligation security review with ADT Commercial for business. No pain, that's good in sports and good in business security. Visit ADT.com forward slash game day to learn more. That's ADT.com forward slash game day. Predictions coming up next. Okay, so the game itself, I don't know if it was totally different for you between the first one and the second one. You know, it's it's towards your career. It's the first time you've moved on. You're in New England. You get there. Your favorites in that one. Uh, I, I, were you a completely different guy? Were you the same guy? I mean, obviously, I can assume some things knowing you and then watching you on the sideline. But, like, I would always worry about the burnout where – you can't be getting real hot and shoving each other around in the locker room and coming roaring out of the tunnel and being like, let's kill. Like it's some sort of scene in, in Gladiator or Braveheart because then you get to wait forever too. So like I would be afraid of peaking and then sort of having a post-peak exhaustion. And then it's like, okay, now you actually have to play this three-hour game. So take us through that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That That's one of the biggest changes. And you'll hear coaches talk about one of the first things they'll say even like a first-time coach like Doug or, you know, a coach who's been there a ton like Bill, you get in that meeting and everybody has a meeting in the beginning of the week that's kind of like when you get to training camp, there's this big, long meeting that takes like four hours and nobody wants to do it. There's the same thing with the Super Bowl and it's all logistics and like, hey, here's the hotel and like this is a map of the practice facility and this is our schedule and these are the points of contact and the ticket meeting takes 30 minutes. But like, the most important part of that meeting that coaches talk about is the game day procedure. And uh, one of the things you have to watch out for, um, because you are conditioned, it's it's not muscle memory, but it's it's like psychological memory that's ingrained in you. If you've been playing for 10, 11 years, never been in the Super Bowl, the halftime show is longer. You know, pregame is longer. You're going to have to come back inside and you're going to have to now take 30 minutes to warm up rather than like 10 minutes. Usually you're rushed to put your stuff on. Now you're going to have this surplus of time. You're going to be sitting in your locker room. You're like, my pregame playlist has run out. What the fuck do I do? Um, and also I should be stretching or moving around, but not peaking, you know? And then like, what do you do in the locker room if you're the guy that gives the pregame talk? Because a lot of times, I, you know, I was usually the guy that would talk in the locker room and Malk would talk on the field. Well, Malk had it easy because... You know, when, once you're on the field, like, you know, I think, well, actually he didn't have it easy because he would have to talk and then we'd come inside. So how do you fire somebody up like an hour before the game? And then again, you know, right before you go out for kickoff is not right before you go out for kickoff anymore. It's effectively like another 10 minutes, 15 minutes longer. And those things make a big difference. So you have to focus on that stuff and coaches make a big point of that. Your speech before that was on Philadelphia. I didn't give it. I didn't give it before the Super Bowl because we had a guy named Brian Brayman who was like a, um, 
Special teams guy, looks like he's in a biker gang, long hair. I don't think he was covered in tattoos. Brian Brayman was an a- absolute psychopath, and he was like a, you know, our cameo speech guy. And sometimes he would just real impromptu start screaming, looking like a fucking hedgehog, just knocking shit over in the lockers and eyes bulging out of his head. And of course, he did look like a Sons of Anarchy dude. So you were like, yeah, I'm, li- I'm listening. But Brayman got going Super Bowl Sunday, and I was like, yeah, you got it, bro. Like, you got it. And he gave what one of say? the... I can't, I just, again, things I can't say. Come on, there has to be some version of it, at least like I'm dying not knowing because you're laughing. So clearly something was awesome here. Ryan, it, it wasn't just football. It was like, we're going to end people. Oh, okay. All right. So we, cro- we crossed over into that non-football people feeling like football people are taking it too seriously. And he was like going to war. Yeah, dude, he was, he was on one, but we were all on one. I mean, you're going out to play the game of your life. Like, First off, there's no right way to give a pregame speech, especially when you have to give like 16 of them, you know? After week eight, the same theme is going to be coming up over and over again. So like, what the fuck do you say? Um, So Brian Brayman, who's just a wild card and executed it brilliantly, was a a welcome sight to anybody having to do a pregame speech, including myself. So let me just say it was uh, it was violent. I'm looking this dude up right now. Look um, him up. Nobody knows till now. Brian Brayman, unless it's been said somewhere else, gave a great pre-Super Bowl speech. That's awesome. I love stories like this because I don't think I've ever heard it before. You've never told me. So he's from uh, Spokane, Washington, and I'm looking him up. I love guys like this. University of Idaho, right out of high school, then Long Beach City College, and then West Texas A&M. Did you hang out with this guy a lot? Yeah, Brayman. Brayman and me yeah. hung out a lot. I think we had dinner Super Bowl week. Um, that's a memory I remember down in the lobby. Me, Brayman, and a couple guys. Jay Ajay had a nice meal. Um, yeah, Brayman was one of, one of those guys when he came back. He was actually, I think, 56 before I was 56. Um, and then he had gotten released right before I got there. So I had, you know, 56. And so I paid attention to who he was. And he also went to school with one of my best friends in Eugene Sims. And this was one of those guys that kind of, there was mythology about him. Like, you know, people that when they walk yeah. into a room, you already knew all about him unnecessarily. It's not like he's a star in the league, but everybody knows Brian Brayman. And uh, Brian Brayman had, uh, he had, I don't know if it was a Rick James aura, you know? Um, like he had an energy, but Brian Brayman, when he walked in the room, you knew it. And, uh, I heard plenty of stories about him. And when he came in, like the first game he'd come out on the field, everybody was standing on the sideline and was like, watch Brian Brayman. (laughs) And this is kickoff. And Brian Brayman goes down and just obliterates like three dudes and gets up screaming like he's, he's on, you know, all the things. And, uh, And I'm like, yeah, that's the guy. And then, you know, as the as the year went on, we got cool and um, got to know him. He's a great dude. He was a great special teams player and uh, also gave really good pregame speeches when he decided to do it. How are the two wins different for you? And I'm just going to speak for you here. Uh, I know you enjoyed the Philly one more because you played more. You played 15 snaps, I think, in the New England game. And it's a great feeling. But I was think anybody that's... Or 15? Not that it fucking matters. 
I thought it was 15. It, it, maybe if it's 19, here's, how about we do this? It was under 20. A lot of hits and pressures. If there's a rebounding per 48 stat out there, which is always a dumb stat because honestly, if you played 10 minutes, you would try harder than 48 because you'd be more tired. So your rebounding rate should go up. But if you had a pressures per 60, you would be up there with some well, of the That is a stat. Pressure rate is a stat. And they, they yeah, yeah, I know, it, was I'm just, one, you know. it was high. But yeah, the, the second game was, second game, I mean, I'm uh, in that game, I'm essentially a starter because we're in sub the whole game. You know, they, um, they spread it out and try to throw the ball around the yard and, and we're chipping out a lot. So that was another game where it's like, hey, a game of my life, right? You know, old team, Tom Brady, this whole thing. And, uh, you know, you're getting chipped every play. But um, I guess the two games were different because rolling into New England, I didn't know if this was the end for me. Um, with everything, you know, physically in my situation late later in my career, um, I thought maybe this was my one opportunity. And, uh, you know, the Eagles game was more like, hey, we're playing with house money. Um, but the element to me that I thought I had something to lose was I'm playing my old team. And LeGarrette felt the same way. It's not like we hated the Pats or anything, but it was like, hey, we both walked. Like, we both left under our own will. If you leave New England, usually they, they get rid of you. Although more and more people are exercising that choice. But we left for football reasons. and. I can't speak for LeGarrette, but there was no bad blood, but it was one of those things is now here we are. And if you lose to the Patriots, everybody's going to call you a dumbass, even though I didn't go play for the Eagles necessarily to win a Super Bowl. I'm not going to lie. I mean, because why would you leave New England to go to this place that was picked to finish in the bottom eight in the league? And um, it was kind of like, oh, this is a great surprise that we're here. But, you know, surprise, surprise, it's my old buddies on the other side of it. So I think they both felt like, you know, besides the obvious, you have a lot on the line, a lot to lose in different ways. You know, in New England, I thought this is my one shot. I've been on losing teams for my entire career, almost a decade, and now I get one chance at it. And uh, and that was tough. There were some tough things for me in that game because as the playoffs rolled on because of matchups and this sort of thing, I, I wasn't playing as much first and second down because I was a three technique and on first and second down, I was an undersized and I was kind of plugging where I could in that scheme. And I understood it, but we were down. We're, we were down the entire first half, so I'm sitting there like getting cold, like in a game. I've waited. You talk about waiting in, in your entire career for a game, and you think you're owed like some experience. And as a competitor, you're like, I want to play. I want to go fucking put my fingerprint on this game. And so having to be able to rebound and come out of the half, you know, being frustrated, being down 28 to three individually as a team. And then go play like most of my snaps that were, you know, around 15, 20 in the second half. Um, that was interesting for me. And then the Super Bowl, we were getting worn out. I mean, like Tom was throwing the ball around like he was fucking 25 years old. And um, Gronk, they made some adjustments at the half that were terrific. And they started getting the ball to Gronk and it was almost like automatic. And we were getting chipped. So we felt kind of helpless in the rush. And so the two games... They had their own challenges. At the end, winning in New England was like a huge relief, you know, uh, and then winning in Philly, you know, I just, I started crying like a baby because I felt like, okay, now my career is, is worth a shit um, in my eyes. So that was, uh, they were both huge. Obviously, New England, they've done it a bunch. Philly, you only done it once. Yeah, and that's one of the things I always try to explain to people. Like, you've got to understand the way Philadelphia was going to appreciate Chris or anyone that was on the Super Bowl team was going to be different than 
the way a fan base for New England was going to appreciate anybody that was part of six. You know, it's just it's just different. If you know, if the Red Sox never won a World Series since two thousand four, the guys on that team are looked at differently. And you know, maybe you guys would be it's just to win a first Super Bowl in a passionate city like Philadelphia that's up there with anybody else. It's just they're they're two completely different experiences, and that's why I always try to. Uh, explain that to anybody that maybe, you know, because nobody ever thinks anybody would ever want to leave New England. Like, hey, why do you want to leave New England? Well, you know, he didn't play a ton in that last Super Bowl. And even though you've won, there's part of it. Like, I've always thought it's weird. Like, first of all, I think announcers that get rings is one of the weirdest things ever. Um, And (laughs) I remember when the Red Sox got the first one in 2004, like you'd be out in town and they gave rings out to everybody. Like if you did insurance, if you like organize their health plan, if you were part of the concessions people, like they're just dudes walking around with World Series rings and, you know, they'd be showing them people and be like, I would have a hard time if I were a practice squad player ever putting on a ring. And especially for somebody like you that was a top pick, a guy that played a long time. I mean, and this isn't about the family and the history and all that stuff and your dad being a Hall of Famer. It's just, I know you. And I think people are wired very differently where it's like, where's my ring, even though I didn't contribute, where if you don't feel like you contributed enough or to your own standard that you set for yourself, you're not going to feel the same about that one as opposed to a guy that was out there for the majority of the snaps on defense. I think that's very easy to understand. I think, I think it's simple. It's it's yeah. real simple. I mean, that does, that's not to say New, New England wasn't awesome. I had that parade was to that day, probably the most fun I ever had in my life. I mean, it was fucking amazing and um you know that those bonds are awesome but yeah i mean like you know i i think when you and a lot of guys get to new england this way if you played eight nine years somewhere else and we're dominant at times like you get to new england and you're like i gotta i gotta do my job i gotta play my role and i'm not gonna complain i never complain um never complained about it and try to do it to the best of my ability and then when it's time to to leave, all you can do is control your your football future. And for a thirty three year old guy, you're like, uh, you know, it's I don't see myself playing to forty. I don't want to. Um, maybe it's time to to do something at this age that's going to be a little bit more agreeable schematically for me. So that was all it was. And they were both fun. I mean, golly, the Brandon Graham strip sack on Brady. Take me through your whole setup on that play. Yeah, well, I mean, the entire at that point, um, we were. Tr- I was trying to, you know, at least the way I was trying to go on uh, seventy one was to collapse him a little bit and not give Tom that feeling of comfort and running by him when I had an opportunity. Because, like I said, for a while we were waiting um, to have situations where we could rush four without getting the double chip out and. There's never a more helpless feeling than just, you know, being, uh, you know, at Tom's disposal through much of that game. And, you know, you got guys like Lane, who's my boy, walking over during the second half. Like, guys, can you get one fucking stop? Do you guys yell at him when he says that to you? Or, like, different guys can say the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fine. Lane was as good as any player on the team. And Lane's also one of my best buddies. And he's not talking to anybody in particular. But, like, at one point, you know, the, hey, here we go, guys. You got this. You got this. You know, when Tom's reeling off, I think, you know, I, I forget what the the halftime score was, but I think they scored about three touchdowns just like that in the second half, and they hadn't punted in a while. And by the way, to set up this play, just so everybody can follow along here, Philly's up 38-33, fourth quarter, 216 to go in the game, and this play, they are at their own 
33-yard line, second and two. And this is a four-man rush with the alignment. I guess you'd call this a Brady in the pistol here. The shotgun running back to his right. Hogan coming left to right. Two wide outs to the left side. So um, the spotlight's on Graham. a ring for the play-by-play. No, but I'm I'm just I just pulled this up as you were talking because I wanted to make sure no, you know no, I no. want everybody who's listening to be able to get the setup for the whole thing. So go ahead, pick it back up. No, I mean no, it was good because um, it was like a four man rush. It was this was a situation where now they had to throw the ball um, without Max protecting. They had to pick up yardage, and uh, quite honestly, I think that if they'd have done the same thing over and over again, I we had not come up with that one big play, and we were good at forcing turnovers all year. We had. You know, we made big plays when it counted. And that was like we had our team had balls and we had we just had like that knack for knowing when the big situation was. And this was a situation that BG stepped up. And so my vantage point of it, um, I'm rushing uh, 71 outside in and, you know, trying to power him. And I feel I feel like I run into somebody and I'm and I'm buckling down um, at about eight yards and I'm. And I see kind of Tom stepping up a little bit. And I guess that turned into, you know, bumping into BG because he had beat the guard so bad. Um, and not bad. He didn't beat him bad, but he beat him just enough uh, to reach out and get that hand. And that's one thing that's burned in my memory is seeing replays of that hand. Just that clutch-ass hand, dude. Um, just getting just enough of it at the right time and the ball's out. And I just remember thinking after I see BG make that play and people are running around like, we just won the fucking game. We're going to win the game. Now, we had to go out again at 41-33 and defend them uh, down by the goal line, backed up. They had to go the entire length of the field in like about a minute. But knowing them, nothing's out of the you know out of the question. So when when that happened, um, there was just this this rush of emotion like, that was our play. And once we made that play, we know we're winning this game. Even if they got to come back out, we know we got to defend them one more time. But we had been waiting for that. And if you believe in momentum or whatever, I think that was just a situation where that late in the game, if you give up a strip, a strip sack, it's more statistically um, you know, relevant that you're going to win that game. And so I just remember seeing grabbing BG <laughs> and uh, seeing everybody – running on the field, like as if time was expired and be like, we got to go make one more play. We got to go make one more play. And, uh, we, we ended up getting a stop, uh, actually came down to a hail Mary, but which was closer than people realize. Yeah. Those things get lost. Like it's always fascinating whenever I go back and watch a game and I'm watching this play over and over again here, but there's like, Oh, that's right. Like that happened. You know, I mean, there's even that hail Mary to Gronk and one of the giants, the, the second giants loss. We are like, wait a minute. That's that actually like looking back, you go that, that may have happened. Um, the oh, great the Giants, thing about yeah, this, he almost had it in that Giants game. <laughs> right. So I look at this play, and I think the key here is because basically it's you on the right tackle, Graham's on the, the right guard, and you get a really good split with your other two. I mean, this is a four-man rush in this formation, and you know, I always kind of make jokes with people. I go, well, I'm sure Chris went up to BG after and was like, hey, you know, I've had it, had I not kept that that rush tight, if I had busted that out wider, like you, that wouldn't happen. I don't think but, it <laughs> mattered what I did. Now, I, I was trying to do what I did, but you guys BG kept them had in. To, that's that's what yeah. I think is really important. Like your rush didn't get too far outside. You still went straight line 
you were getting him, but then, you know, the tackle actually puts you on the ground at the end, but at that point it's over. And honestly, Graham, like the, the science and the odds of him being able to push against Brady where Brady steps up, Brady has maybe the best in the pocket mobility I've ever seen. He's got two hands on the ball and it's not a nasty strip sack where it's like chop of the forearm. It's like a perfectly placed right on it pushing. It's unbelievable watching this again, but I do think that you guys staying close allowed kind of this car pile up on the right side of their offensive line, even though it was just two versus two. Well, we always talked about no no step-ups with Brady. I mean, I talked about that earlier, the inside guys in the middle push. And one thing was like, we rushed a lot of sub and our group was in sub was BG rushing inside of me. And then on the other side, it was obviously Fletch and Fletch would pop over sometimes and rush with me. But that game, I felt like I was with BG a lot. And then uh, Derek Barnett on the other edge and Vinnie Curry would 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 come in sometimes as well because he was a good inside rusher. Um, but, you know, the biggest deal in sub, you talk about sub and, and being able to get, get push, BG can rush like a tackle inside. I mean, he's an end, but, you know, go shake BG's hand and see how fucking big BG is. BG is like a three tech and he rushes really well inside. So you don't have to worry about it. It's like if you have two speed guys in your sub, they're not like true DNs popping down. I mean, Fletch is obviously Fletch. You could brush it end or tackle. Um, and then, you know, it's relevant in the San Francisco conversation because you asked me, uh, earlier about what does sub do, uh, in this game and like, why can San Francisco do certain things that other people can't is, um, because their tackles can rush really well. I mean, Armstead have more sacks than Bosa. Um, Buckner has been just, you know, a demon in there, uh, dropping people left and right. I mean, when Buckner beats people, he's dropping them in, in place. And by that, I mean, like, head down, he's passed them. They're, they're real, like, dominant wins. And those guys can also do enough to hold up in the run game. So you never have to, you never have to worry about that. Um, so, you know, you don't have to worry. You, you can get power with those guys. You can win with speed. And, and like I said, that, that's going to be a big matchup. But it was an especially big matchup for us because, Tom, as you could see, that play, he was trying to climb the pocket. I mean, if you we see him in yeah, slow right. motion, he's trying to step up. Yeah. No flybys was the big coaching point. Like, do not fly by Tom and give him easy access to to step up lanes. And and BG did a hell of a job. I mean, BG was able to win with speed, but not bubble too far. And like you said, it was kind of a car pile up, so it was confusing at the time. But a lot of times, whether it's you getting a sack or another person getting a sack, and you're in a pile, you can judge off the reaction of what happened. And you could hear the crowd, and uh, I didn't even need to see what happened. I knew we had the ball. Um, now, DB, it was a little bit of a, a, a scramble for it, but you could you could hear that the ball was out, and then you knew for sure we had it. I watched the Hail Mary again, too, and uh, Brady almost got taken down on that throw, and he was trying By to move BG. up in the pocket and throw it to the flat, and BG has him in his in his arms, and Brady gets out, and then he throws it, and Gronk, it's on the hands, be surrounded by like all these green mosquitoes. <laughs> like they just yeah. look like these little bugs around him. He was and, gi- um, he's giant, bro. It's the scariest guy in a jump ball drill. Totally. Cause I mean, you don't, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Okay. Uh, this was absolutely incredible. I hope people enjoyed this. And just on our way out here, as you get ready a couple of days away from this, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your Super Bowl pick and then I'll get mine. All right. I'm so unsure on this, but I think it's Kansas City. It's one of those games that you feel like if it's not for Mahomes, everything in my brain is telling me 
San Francisco for a number of reasons. The run game against a really porous uh, run defense. That front four getting after Mahomes. He's not going to be able to drift like he usually does. We talked about that. But I think Mahomes versus Jimmy G, I just have to I have to take Mahomes. And the one thing is, I think they start fast. They've been they've been really slow starters in the playoffs, getting their ass kicked in the first quarter, and they've just dominated people in the last three. I think this is a game where they the speed that that they have is something that San Francisco hasn't seen before. Uh, and I think if they get out early and they start fast like an Andy team usually would off a bye, um, and they didn't against Houston, that's not what San Francisco's built to do is play from behind. Now, I think San Francisco, if they don't abandon the run game, could be just fine. I think it's a good game. Uh, I, I was on the uh, on the over initially, and I looked at it more. I'm on the under. <laughs> I think it's going to be lower scoring than people think, and even I thought a week ago. And uh, And I think Kansas City comes out with it because of uh, Patrick Mahomes. I'm leaning Chiefs. I've been on this this Chiefs thing where I felt like with New England, you know, honestly, the Titans did New England a favor because I think they would have gotten crushed in Kansas City. Um, and even though Baltimore put together this incredible run, and, you know, I would have rather have seen Baltimore and, and Kansas City face off just because we want to see what was going to happen there. I'm not shocked that it's Kansas City through this. So I'm going to go with a quarterback that, can change a game in a way I don't think any other quarterback can right now. And, you know, maybe Russell Wilson belongs in that. Um, but that that might be the only other quarterback that I think can truly find a way to do anything in any kind of game. And Mahomes is at another level. So uh, the other part for Kansas City that I feel like is a little scary is that Garoppolo's literally had to do nothing here. And Shanahan is right there with Andy Reid, if not better than him, I think, in putting this whole thing together and adapting, which which seems ridiculous because of the resumes and Shanahan being so new to this. But I can't tell if the Garoppolo thing is the reason I should pick San Francisco because I certainly like San Francisco's defensive personnel a lot better than Kansas City's, but Kansas City's has been really good statistically here now since midway point of the season, uh, which has also been overlooked, so I think they can compete. So is it that Garoppolo is incapable of beating Mahomes or they haven't needed him to? And Garoppolo is capable of, of stepping up and having these kind of moment games. He's had a handful of them this year where you go on Monday, all right, well, you know, Jimmy G was really good this week. But he's not Mahomes, and that's usually the way I'm going to go unless I'm so enamored with a defensive gap. And I just think Kansas City's defense is a little better than it gets credit for. Yeah, and and I think you bring up a great point with Jimmy. I mean, everybody's looking at this like functionally, okay, Jimmy's going to have to throw more. Can he throw more and win? I mean, there was a New Orleans game. I mean, also, to be fair, they've been down. They got punched in the mouth a few times this year, which actually bodes well for him. But the way they're built, I'm just saying – Kansas City's not a, a team, save for Andy Reid's clock management and kind of his lead management um, that that you want to be behind on. And, um, you know, I, I think people are worried about the Jimmy G throwing stats, but I think it's it's even more like, how do you practice him these two weeks? How how have they been practicing him to get him the throwing load that 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 he needs to stay in it? I mean, he's kind of like a pitcher that's just been sitting in the bullpen and the rust factor is real. So what do you do to simulate game speed stuff in practice? I have no idea without throwing his arm off, right, to overcompensate. So I don't know. Um, but another thing uh, with the Kansas City defense, they have to deny first read access. And they've done that really well this off or this uh, this postseason in the Houston and Tennessee games. Uh, like they've been much better than the, than the regular season as far as taking away that first read. So... If you take away Jimmy G's first read, 
uh, and they can do that consistently, I, I, I do think they win this game uh, because of the rush you talked about. And then also the fact that, that you know, making Jimmy go through his pro- progression uh, throughout the entire game is going to be tough for him. You're the man. He's here all week in Miami. Chris Long at Joel91. Check out all of their work on Chalk Media. We will link with this podcast. We'll link you to a bunch of stuff that those guys are doing. And it's been an awesome season. And uh, looking forward to at least a Super Bowl wrap-up next Monday. All right? Yes, sir. 